Let's, let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. I wanted to ask you the question of whether you're ready to see the coming king. The coming king of glory. And this is a question that, um, that you should keep asking yourself throughout your life. Because it keeps you on track. It keeps you understanding what life is about. Because life is not about here and the things that you can do. saw an illustration of one guy. He used a, a big, long rope, and it was a big stage, and he had rope maybe uh, equivalent, like, in that hallway, and it just pulls the rope over. Uh, a foot of it was colored red. It says, this is a representation of, of your life, but your life extends unto eternity. And what you do in this little section will determine what, where your eternity is. And so then he was saying how it just seems so stupid to him to just think about this, this life now, and making it more comfortable, getting more stuff and, you know, different things, and just dealing with stuff here with no regard to what's to come. And so he was saying how people would say, well, why are you so stupid doing that? And sacrificing this in this life. And he says, and they call me stupid? And so, in a similar way, Psalm 24 is a song that uh, I think the Israelites sung. That if understood correctly, that that would reorient their life to what life is really about. And life is about being ready to welcome the coming king. Now, we'll find out in this, in this psalm, there's, there's a, I think, an implicit anticipation that's built an implicit it's not uh, explicit in the text but i think it's explicit implicitly there that we'll kind of explore so let's let's dive in it's a psalm of david and it's broken up into three sections the first section is talking about yahweh's creator and you can find that in verses one and two the second section is yahweh is a holy god or is the holy god and you can see that in verses 3 through 6. And the final section is in verses 7 through 10, where Yahweh is the king of glory. Okay? So Yahweh is the creator God, Yahweh is the holy God, and Yahweh is the king of glory. Okay? So let me read it for us. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the holy, sorry, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Jacob, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Would you pray with me? Our great God and Father, Father of the King of glory, 
we want to come and ask that you would open the eyes of our heart and settle the dust of this life that we might see what life is about. That life, eternal life, is about knowing you and your son whom you have sent and that we would orient our life in such a way because of love for you to be ready to welcome the King of Glory, the Lord Jesus, with great joy and expectation and anticipation and love. So strengthen us. Recognize that I only stand approved to stand before this, your people, because of Christ. And so, Father, I'd ask that um, because of him that you would magnify yourself through the preaching and the listening and the receiving of your word. Pray that this church at Cornerstone will receive your word as not the words of men, but as your very word, receiving it, being willing to pay the price and count Christ as worthy and precious, deserving of all loyalty, honor, glory, affection. I pray that you accomplish these mighty things because you are the mighty God. Thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Yahweh is created, verses 1 and 2. The earth is Yahweh's. And, and what I'm going to highlight is if you have a New American Standard or some other Bible that's um, uh, that makes this distinction. Typically in our English Bibles, you know, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D signifies the Hebrew word for Yahweh, for Yahweh. This is the covenant name for God. If you just see the, just only the L capitalized and then lowercase O-R-D, that uh, points to the, the, uh, his, his authority as king, okay? And so then they make this distinction. So sometimes we read too quickly over it. So I'm going to as we go through each section, I'm going to highlight where it's uh, and translate the word Lord as Yahweh. So the earth is Yahweh's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So at first in verse 1, we see the statement of, of Yahweh's absolute ownership and comprehensive ownership of all things everywhere for all time. He says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. There is nothing on the earth or in the earth, or above the earth, under the earth, that is not owned by Yahweh. Yahweh owns it all. And not only the stuff, in the next phrase in verse 1, he says, the world and those who dwell in it. So not only just the trees and the rocks and the, the gold and the silver and the diamonds and the, and the buildings and the air, the molecules, the stars and the sun, the comets, and you just go on and on. Not only does he own the stuff, the animals, the plants, he owns you because you are one who dwells on the earth, are you not? And he dwells and he owns everybody who dwells upon his earth. He owns everything. He owns those who reject him. He owns those who have never heard about him. He owns those who are in the deepest, darkest jungle or in the highest reaches of the Himalayas. He owns everybody, everybody. He owns everybody. Why does he own everybody? One verse 2, it says, in a poetic way, he says, because he made it all. He made all of you. He says, for he has founded it upon the seas. And it refers to the world. He founded the world upon the seas. 
and established it upon the rivers. And this is kind of just the shortened, you know, poetic compression of Genesis 1. Part of it was, you know, he separated the waters and, and brought out the foundation, right? That's where it's kind of focusing. And this is just compressed. He just focuses on that one, that one event to represent all of it, to represent all of it, all six days of creation. So just to stop right here, Yahweh is creator, and he owns everything and everyone. Just to stop and think about that. He owns you. He owns your car. He owns your house. He owns this church. He owns your kids. He owns your spouse. He owns your grandkids. He owns your friends. He owns everything. Is that how you live? Or do you live as if you own it? Like you can call the shots. With disregard to him. Right? You ever had a person who who borrowed something of yours and treated it like it was theirs? Ever had that happen to you? Didn't return it? Abused it? Drove it into the ground? Beat on it? Like it stole something? You know what that's like. Hey, you don't want to be selfish, but hey, that's not yours. That's mine. One, one thing that, you know, in re- retreats and different things when I was growing up, I didn't grow up as a Christian, but it, one thing that I continually heard is, you know, when we go to a retreat site, leave it better than when we came. Why? Because it's not ours. You trash your own house, fine, and you deal with the consequences, but this is not our place. So then take, take that and recognize, do you raise your kids with disregard that God owns your kids? Do you have problems when God does things with your kids, your life, your money? As if it were yours? When the stock market crashes and your portfolio tanks? Do you think, oh, all my money's gone. I can't do with, with it what I want. When you know it was a sovereign act of God? You and all of your things are Yahweh's. So how do you live your life? Do you live your life before Yahweh, who is the creator who owns everything and everyone? We can keep thinking about this. But then the psalmist moves on, and he starts to ask a question in verse 3. As he transitions, really abruptly, actually, abruptly to the next section, he says, who may ascend to the, you know, the hill of the Lord? You're like, what? We were just talking about Yahweh's creator. Where does the hill come from? And you'll see what strings this all together is Yahweh. It's, it's he who strings all of this together. We'll talk about one slice of him or one perspective of of the facet of, of the jewel of who he is, and it's he is creator. And immediately, it's like a quick switch, and then we see 
him as a holy God. And we start off this section and he says, who may ascend to the hill of Yahweh and who may stand in his holy place? So we're not just talking about some, some hill, some knoll, okay? Some grassy knoll. We're talking about a hill that is particularly Yahweh's and it's further described as a holy place, as a holy place. And the question is, who has rightful access to this place? Who can come before Yahweh? Who can stand before him? Well, Psalmist the David answers this and he says, here's who can stand before Yahweh. And you can read it. It says, verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, it's helpful to know that this is Hebrew poetry. So, if we're in other places, you would read this differently. Clean hands would literally mean you have no dirt or germs on your physical hands. Okay? But this is poetry. This is representative of something else. Okay? It's metaphorical, poetic language. So, clean hands, pure heart. And because it's linked together, we, we, can, we can draw this connection. So, what does clean hands represent? Everything that you do whether it's with your hands, your feet, your arms, your eyes, your ears, everything that you do, it's clean. There's no dirt of immorality. There's no stain of sin on, as it were, your hands. In everything that you do, there is no stain. There is no dirt. There is no grime. In every nook and cranny of your life, there is no dirt. Anybody pass the test? You should be thinking, absolutely not. If you're thinking yes, then you're either like my son, who's three, (laughs) or you don't understand really what life is about. But then it's not just clean hands, it's pure heart. And if the clean hands didn't get you, the pure heart will, okay? Because maybe some of you think that you can, you can outwardly fool and, and put up a front and keep the outside clean, but the inside is filthy. And see, if I could just keep the outside clean enough, if I could come to church and smile and hide my problems and hide my sin and, and my wife and I will have this fight. And when we come, it's like, hey, good morning. Good morning, brother and sister. How is everything? Oh, things are great. When you're still in the midst of an all-out thermonuclear marital heated discussion. See, you might be able to clean up the outside and think that you're able to have access to God's holy hill. But then he says, no, not just clean hands, but a pure heart. Heart stands for everything from the thinking to the emotions to the will to the motivations. It's not only what you do, but why you do it. Just take, it's uh, 1032, just take the last, or 37, take the last 37 minutes that you were here. We sang, we prayed, 
we prepared our hearts. And, you know, I wasn't trying to check on you. I just thought of this illustration. I wasn't trying to check on you, but it didn't seem like anybody was, you know, outwardly trying to rebel against God and disobey Him and treat Him as, as, as common, not love Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But just think back. When you're saying wonderful, merciful Savior, is it really Him that you adore? Is it? Is He the one that you praise? When you pray, do you recognize that you are coming before this holy God and have the audacity to ask Him for things? Why did you do it? Did you just go through it? Because of this is just what we do on Sundays. Because God, God cares about that. Why you do it? Why do you read your Bible? Just to check it off? Or it's because you, you love the law of God. Because it tells you about the God that you love. Why do you pray? Why do you share the gospel? Talk to unbelievers about the good news of Jesus Christ. Why do you do that? Is it because if you don't, you'll feel guilty? And so then you feel guilty enough and that motivates you to talk to some unbeliever so that you will feel good? God cares about those things. Who can have access to God's holy hill? Who may ascend to Yahweh's hill? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And then third, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood. In some translations, it says idolatry. And it's, those, those are valid translations. Because in the Old Testament mind, you can turn really quickly, if you wouldn't mind, to Jeremiah chapter 13. Just to kind of illustrate this, okay? As Jeremiah is prophesying against Israel southern kingdom of Israel, Judah. He, he foretells of them being deported by Babylon. Okay, and then this is uh, um, uh, this uh, picture, this uh, object lesson of Israel is like a, a, a sash, a linen cloth tied around the Lord's waist. And he's, he, he tied it there so that they would cling to him. Okay, he wants Israel to cling to him. He wants his people to cling to him, but they don't. And so then he hides them, under this, in this hole, in this rock, by the Euphrates, which is a symbol for Babylon. Anyways, so then just quickly. So then he talks about this, and in verse 8, he says, Then the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, came to me. Thus says Yahweh, Just so I will destroy the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This wicked people, now listen to how God describes them, okay? Verse 10. This wicked people who... Refuse to listen to my words, who walk in the stubbornness of their hearts, and notice, and have gone after other gods to serve them and to bow down to them. Let them be like this uh, uh, destroyed waistband, which is totally worthless. Okay? Now, have that in mind. They don't listen to God. They're stubborn in their hearts, and they've gone after other gods to serve them. Now, jump down to verse 25. He continues on in their, 
this description and, and gives this explanation. And he comes and he recapitulates and describes the same people again. He says, this is your lot, the portion measured to you from me, declares Yahweh. Why? Because you have what? Forgotten me and trusted in what? Falsehood. And that's the same word here. Back in verse 10, Jeremiah describes them as going after other gods, right? Idolatry. In 25, describes the same event, same type of people, same people, and describes them as trusting in falsehood. So then, this is not believing in lies in general per se. This is, you have clean hands, pure heart, and you have not lifted up your soul to offer it to that which is false, a false god, an idol. Okay? Now you know, you know. It doesn't have to be made physically out of stone, and it doesn't have to be made physically out of wood. Those are just representations of what's in our heart. It's whatever takes, is more important, you give more affection to, than God. Whatever is more important to you than God is a false idol in your life because you give it more affection, praise, worship, attention, loyalty, commitment than God. It says, clean hands, pure heart, and you have not lifted up your soul to falsehood. So let me ask you, where do you offer up your life? Where do you offer up your blocks of five minutes? Imagine, just picture your thoughts. And where do you, what altar do you place it upon? Where does it go? Your sight, your hearing, your ability to walk. Where do you put those? Where do you lift them up? Where do you lift them up? Is it to God? And you place them on the altar in worship for God, right? Like a Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to what? Offer up your bodies as a what? Living sacrifice, which is wholly acceptable to God, right? Where do you offer up your life? Another way to gauge this is, do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And you should say, absolutely not. Because if you don't love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you are offering up your soul to somewhere else. To somewhere else. You might as well just come clean and admit it. Okay? Then, last one. Clean hands, pure heart. Have not lifted up your soul to falsehood or idolatry. Last one. You have not sworn deceitfully. You haven't taken an oath. You haven't made a promise and lied about it. Didn't keep it. You say, well, maybe, maybe there's some of you. He says, I don't do that. I don't do that. Well, take the last characteristic, not lifted up your soul to falsehood and sworn deceitfully. And think about if you were professing faith in Christ, 
This is repenting from your sins and coming to faith in Christ. This is not just accepting Jesus into your heart, okay? This is, I swear allegiance to this Christ, the Lord Jesus, the anointed Messiah, okay? Or that's redundant. The anointed, the Messiah, the Christ. I pledge my allegiance to him, to follow him wherever he goes, to obey him and love him no matter what the cost. This is, this is the call of a Christian, right? Isn't this what Jesus says? If anyone wishes to come after me, right, to follow me, he has to what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow me. This is all of Christian life. It's whatever you want to call it, which I think could be confusing, you have to understand you have sworn allegiance to the Lord Jesus. For all of your life. If you've not been faithful to that, you've made an oath deceitfully. You you know those, right? Let's go to the other extreme. You know people, friends, who, God, if you just get me out of this jam, I will... Oh, God, if you, if, you, if you help me with this business thing, oh, God, I would give. Oh, God, I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. Or whatever, right? And, and, by the way, the assumption is that you don't do it, okay? So, some of you say those things, and actually do it, which is, you know, by the grace of God. Fantastic. So, but the assumption is that you don't do it. So, anybody pass the test? Not me, either. So then, Hypothetically speaking, in verse 5, if, if you were a type of person to have clean hands, pure heart, not lifted up your soul to falsehood, have not sworn deceitfully, you have access and right to stand before Yahweh and his, in his holy hill, to stand before him. And if you are that type of person, verse 5, then you will receive blessing. Receive a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You get that? It's the one who has clean hands, pure heart, not lifted up his soul, etc., etc. That's the one who is described as being qualified not only to stand before holy God, but to receive a blessing from him and righteousness. So if I boil it all down, you want to be blessed by God? You want to have confidence that you should be blessed by God and receive righteousness, then be perfect. Be perfect. This is the one who will receive a blessing and righteousness from God, the God of our salvation. Not only that, look at verse 6. This type of person, okay? This type of person is the generation of those who seek him. And then there's that kind of dangling word, some. Translations say even Jacob or the God of Jacob, 
It just should be Jacob. And you know, Jacob, the, the individual, was renamed what by God? Israel, right? Because he was the beginning, the, the literal beginning of the nation. And so then later on, when, when the prophets want to talk about Israel, sometimes they just interchange the word Jacob. So I'll just kind of summarize this. This is the generation. This is the type of person. The type that has clean hands, pure heart. This is the type of person who seeks your face. The people of God. So what is he saying? First he says, listen, unless you have clean hands, pure heart, unless you're perfect, you ought not to think that you should receive a blessing or righteousness from God. Neither should you call yourself as one who seeks after God. Nor should you call yourself and be audacious enough to call yourself the people of God. You are not. You are not. Because if you're not described by verse 4, then 5 and 6 are not for you. And then, Selah. Which is a musical notation either for crescendo or decrescendo, increased volume or decreased volume, or pause. Now, if you're following along, and if you're listening, you should feel scared, hopeless, and puzzled. Because Yahweh, the Creator God who owns you, has a standard. And that standard to come before Him is perfection. And none of us are perfect. You say, well then, we're in trouble. And you're right. And then it's pause. Just to stop and think. Now, I'm approaching this as if this were the first time that we're singing this. Okay? But then we'll, we'll go to the end and then come back and, and imagine if we've sung this again and again and again. Okay? So, at this point, we just pause and leave you in the, in the, in the swamps of despair. Okay? That's the bad part. But let's transition to 7 through 10. Again, a, a very abrupt, seemingly, transition. No conjunctions, no and, therefore, and so then. There's none of that. It's just next statement. Just like from verse, verse 1 and 2 to verse 3 through, uh, 3 through 6. It's just now, lift up your head, O gates. Like, we were just talking about a hill. Where do these gates come from? Right? And again, remember what strings it all together? It's the person, Yahweh. See, lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? And here's, this, here's the connector. Yahweh. Yahweh, who is creator God. Yahweh, who is holy. Now, Yahweh is the king of glory. You catch that? So then, and you can see in verses 7 to 10, verse 7 and 9 are exactly word for word the same. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, 
or be lift, lift up your heads, o, o gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then the next question in, the, in 8 and 10 is the same. Who is the King of glory? And the beginning of the answer is the same. It's Yahweh, and then these descriptions. Do you see that? So this function is kind of like this, this chorus, this mini chorus that you just repeat. So then, first of all, just in your own reaction to this, what type of tone is verses 7 to 10 in? Is it, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, oh man, that the king of glory may come in. Oh. Is it like that? Or is it like this? Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. It's like that, isn't it? It's this very joyful welcome. And again, this is poetic language. And he says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. What, what's this talking about? At the city, at the city, because of protection, there would be a wall. And so then, you know, it's just, there's this big uh, uh, door that they shut at night for, for security. And um, if you've ever been to... Um, if you've ever been to Stanford, anybody who've been to Stanford? I know we're in Southern California and all that stuff, but if you've been to Stanford, the, the people who designed it, who designed the entrance, they designed it to be very big and majestic, and it's designed to intimidate. You, you, you go into to Stanford, and you drive in, and the, the architecture and the landscape architect what they designed it to be is to intimidate in the entrance, okay? So you can make statements with your entrance. And what they're saying and calling out to these gates is, raise it up, raise it up. Don't let it be this little itty-bitty teeny door. You ever, you ever wonder why cities would make such huge entrances? Because defensively, that is your weak point, right? That's why they have these huge wooden doors and then maybe a little, little door in between so one by one people can come out so you don't have, they're kind of lazy maybe, that they don't want to uh, open up the door all the time like, oh, I forgot something, you know, in the village. Ah, oh, gosh, and like, uh, you know, open and close it. You ever wonder Why? because of this because when the king and his army goes out to fight and they come back they don't want to come in through this itty bitty door especially when they come back and have won you come back and you fling open this huge massive door and you get this sense of somebody important and big is coming And so then, even with that, they're saying, raise it up, gates, lift up doors. Why? So that the king of glory would come in because your gate is too small for this king. You need to raise it up. This needs to be this massive, huge door 
to communicate the worth and the bigness and the importance of this king. He is the king of glory. So then you say, who is this king of glory? Who is so important that we want to lift up these gates to welcome him back? Okay? And by the way, this is a welcoming back, right? I'm just setting all this up, so let me just state it explicitly. This is welcoming back this king. This king of glory is from afar, and you're just preparing for his coming back. Who is this king of glory? Verse 8, Yahweh. Strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. So this king of glory is a victoriously, a victorious warrior king of glory. This victorious king is a, this king of glory, sorry, is a victorious warrior king of glory. Okay? You look at um, verse 10. Not only is he's Yahweh strong and mighty, Yahweh mighty in battle, but he was Yahweh of hosts. He is the commander of the most powerful beings ever created in the universe. He commands them, and they do his bidding in an instant. Just to consider the power, okay? Some of you have read the book of Revelation. You know how, you know, the, the half the world's burned kind of stuff, and third of the sea turns to blood and all that stuff? You know who does that? Angels. But it's just one for each thing. One angel goes out and then, you know, plague goes out. One. One. So then, remember when Jesus, he says, don't you think I can call legions of angels, 10,000 angels to come to my aid? Remember that? Right before, when he's getting arrested? I mean, if one angel can devastate half the world... What in the world can 10,000 angels do, right? And if 10,000 angels can do what we imagine, you know how many angels there are? There, angels there are? Revelation 4 and 5 describes myriads of myriads of angels, thousands upon thousands. They, they, they take the biggest word, 10,000, and then add 10,000. This is the biggest number of biggest number. That's how many angels Yahweh commands. And he commands them all. This king of glory is a victorious, all-powerful, never-loses warrior king. He is the king of glory. As we're singing this from the Old Testament perspective, okay, this question, who is the king of glory, is unanswered. Who is this king of glory? We don't know. Historians would say, um, and this is, I found this really interesting in my reading last night. Historians would say that um, at the time of, of the triumphal entry, Psalm 24 worked it, uh, not at the time, but Psalm 24 had worked itself into the, the liturgy of Jewish worship, Jewish hymnody, okay, singing. 
And so they would sing this as Passover would approach. And you know when they would sing it? What would be Palm Sunday? You know what happened on Palm Sunday? When Jesus was alive? What happened? The triumphal entry, right? So at the gate and the entrance of the city of Jerusalem, the people were throwing down palm branches saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the king has come. But at the temple, you know what they were singing? Who is this king of glory? Yahweh. Strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Yahweh of hosts, he is the king of glory. And see, we get a clue that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, is Yahweh. Okay? This might kind of mess up your Trinitarian theology. But the Bible is clear that it also understands Jesus is Yahweh. Not all the time. Not all the time. Okay? But in this time, that Yahweh is Jesus. Here, let me show you. Turn, turn quickly to John chapter, uh, John chapter 12. John chapter 12. We don't have time to go into everything, but just Jesus teaching and then <clears throat> talking about he is the light. Walk in the light uh, while you have the light so that the darkness won't overtake you. He's, he's teaching the Pharisees and all that stuff. Uh, but pick it up at the last half of verse 36. It says, he says these things, the things that he taught. And you can read it for yourself. These things Jesus spoke. And this is John, the disciple, right? The gospel writer. He's giving a narrative explanation of what just happened. Okay? He's inserting narrative commentary. So then, these things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, verse 37, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke... Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, that should sound very familiar to you, right? That's Isaiah, what? 53, verse 1. So they're not believing, even though they perform many signs, is to fulfill Isaiah 53, 1. Okay? Then, 39. For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again. And so then, he says, they didn't believe to fulfill Isaiah 53, 1. And the reason why they didn't believe is, let me tell you, because Isaiah talks about it in another place. And then he quotes Isaiah again. Verse 40, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their hearts and be converted and I heal them. You know where that's from? Isaiah chapter 6. Now get this. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Now, who is the him referring to in John chapter 12? Jesus. This is talking about Jesus, right? Isaiah, John's, John the gospel writer, saying Isaiah was talking about Jesus. And he saw Jesus' glory now, when did Isaiah see the glory of God? Isaiah chapter 6. And let me quickly read Isaiah chapter 6. Just the beginnings of it. 
says, in the year of King, of King Uzziah's death, I saw, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Now, this is talking about not Yahweh. He saw the, the, the king, okay? I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. When with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is, now it's Yahweh of hosts. Sound familiar? The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the who? What's it say? The king, Yahweh of hosts. You know who David was writing about? He's writing about Jesus. But from their perspective, it wasn't clear. This was a valid question. Who is this king of glory? They didn't know. And there's this implicit but yet strong anticipation that's built as you sing this song. So let's go back, right? Yahweh is the creator God. He owns you. And unless you live perfectly, you don't live as if he owns you, okay? You live as if you own yourself. That's a problem, but he doesn't address that. Then he talks about who's going to be able to have access and the right to stand before this holy God. Who? Well, the one who has clean hands. In everything that you do, there is no dirt or grime of sin. Pure heart. In what you, not only what you do, but why you do it, there is no stain of sin. You have not lifted up your soul and treated something or somebody else more important than God, and you have not sworn an oath deceitfully. This is the one who can be called one who is blessed of God. This is the one who can be called one who is a people of God, who seeks after God. Then pause. But then on the other end, you know, you know, this Yahweh creator, this Yahweh holy God, you have no right to stand before. But yet in verse 7 to 10, if you're going to sing this and be part of the singing, you have to welcome him. What in the world? If he is the creator and he, you own him and you have trashed his stuff that he gives to you as a steward and you have been an unfaithful, wicked steward and you are not holy and not clean and not pure, you have no right to stand before him, how in the world can you welcome this king of glory, mighty in battle, this warrior king? How can you welcome him with joy? How? How? That's in the pause, I think. And the answer is, this warrior king will die for your sins. You have no right to stand before a holy God except for the fact that the king of glory died for you. You have no right. Not only are you owned by him because he created you, if you are a child of God, now you are doubly owned because you are not Purchased with gold or silver or precious stone, you are purchased by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory. See, as you sing this song again and again, 
this is what should draw in your heart and in anticipation in the Salah, in the pause, I think. You need to remember, listen, that you and I have no right to stand before this God. We have no right to speak out to God as if and complain against him when he does things with his stuff. When he takes away his money from you. When he takes away the health that he gives to you. When he gives it to you, takes it away, right? He can do whatever he wants with his stuff, with you. Because he owns it. He created it. But we have such problems with that. I have such problems with that. Additionally, we have no right to stand before him. But he's coming. But he's coming. We have no right to be called those who seek after God. We have no right to be called the people of God. Because we don't have clean hands and a pure heart. But the question is, how in the world are we supposed to welcome this king of glory with joy if we are like this? Who is this king of glory? His name is Jesus. God saves. This king of glory, whom we have no right who, whom, whom we should be crushed by, okay? We should be crushed under his feet and annihilated by his sword. This king of glory is, for many of you, your savior. And that's great, right? So then we can say, with the same tone and same attitude in which it was attended. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. Why? So that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? It's Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ. And he's coming. He's coming. See, for the, the Israelites, from this time, in this perspective, they didn't know about his first coming. They knew he was coming, but he, they didn't know who. But now we know who. We don't know when, but we know who, and we know he is coming. So then I ask you, are you ready for the king of glory to come? Because he's coming. Well, how do you know that you're ready? Do you recognize verses 1 through 6 about yourself? You have no right. You, you are a sinner before God. And all that you deserve is an eternity in hell. That's all that you and I deserve. But he's coming. And this king of glory offers himself up to die on your behalf. And he came not as rep... Uh, expressing himself as this glorious king, but a humble servant. When he came the first time, he came and became like a man. He took on the appearance of a man, and he humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant. 
and he laid down his life for you. So that, so that, you could sing verses 7 to 10. And quickly, by the way, lest we forget, lest I forget to obey the command of God in Ephesians 2, this song was not for me. And this song was not for most of you who I can physically tell are not Jews. Okay? This was not primarily for you and I. Right? It's, notice, this is the generation who seeks you, what, Jacob or Israel? We're nowhere there. We have no right. Not only do we have no right because we're sinners, but we're Gentiles, most of us, I think. We're doubly disqualified. But then, because Christ died, we who are far off have been brought near. So then, then, then we can sing along with the nation of Israel, the redeemed people of, of the Jews. We can sing along with them. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. The King of glory will come in. And we want that. We want that. Oh, come, King of glory, Lord Jesus. So, are you ready? Are you ready? Because if you're aiming your life for something else, then you're just focusing on this little itty-bitty part and totally disregarding the rest of eternity. And that's stupid or foolish, as the Bible would say. But if by God's grace you come and say, God, I am a sinner. I am one who has dirty hands and an impure heart. I have lifted up my soul to falsehood more times than I can ever count. But your king of glory laid down his life for me, and I lay hold of that promise with all of my might, and he is now my greatest treasure. I love him because he died for me. And not only did he forgive me of my sins, he promises to change me. I will not stay the way that I am, praise God. I will be changed. And one day when he comes, I will see him and I will be made like him. For I will see him as he is. Come, Lord Jesus, King of glory. Pray with me. Father, we uh, would want to align our hearts yet again to the Apostle John, who after he had seen visions, enrapturing visions of you and your son, the Lamb of God, standing as if slain, seeing the worth of you and how all glory, power, and dominion and every good thing should be pointed to you. He said, come, Lord Jesus. So, Father, we want to align our hearts and pray that your kingdom would come because the king of glory has come. And we recognize that um, for many, this will mean their destruction. Oh, but we pray for your the king to be merciful 
that many, not only <clears throat> from this room, but in the community around us, would come to find refuge in the sun and kiss the sun before it's too late. Oh God, help us to live lives ready for the King, that whenever he comes, he would find us faithfully loving him with all his heart, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And though we do not see him, help us to love him this way until he comes. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.